This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible healthcare for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Welcome to the Race to Value. This week, we're delving into the intersection of healthcare and climate change, recognizing the urgency outlined by the World Health Organization, which has declared climate change as the greatest threat to global health in the 21st century. As our planet grapples with the accelerating impacts of climate change, it's crucial that we adopt a climate lens in the value transformation of our healthcare industry. I mean, the repercussions of climate change extend far beyond these environmental shifts. They manifest in various health issues, and it's essential to acknowledge that while climate change affects everyone, the burden disproportionately impacts marginalized populations. And there's this interconnectedness of climate impacts and social determinants of health in our underserved communities. And as we think about this pursuit of delivering safe, effective, and efficient care amid the climate crisis, we as healthcare leaders also bear the responsibility to address the substantial greenhouse gas emissions that are generated by the sector. Accounting for nearly one-fifth of the U.S. GDP, the healthcare industry possesses considerable purchasing power that can be harnessed to steer the nation towards cleaner energy and a low-carbon supply chain. And beyond mitigating environmental harm, embracing preventative models of care, enhancing care quality that lowers excess utilization, naturally aligns with lower carbon footprints. Value-based care, therefore, can become a powerful catalyst and propelling us forward toward a net zero carbon future that will build a sustainable, resilient future for our planet. So this week, I'm pleased to bring you a discussion I had with Dr. Vivian Lee. She's a healthcare executive dedicated to the advancement of value-driven transformation in health and tackling climate change. She's the author of the acclaimed book, The Long Fix. She's an executive fellow at the Harvard Business School. Uh, she's a senior lecturer at Harvard Medical School. Prior to her executive fellowship at Harvard, she was the founding president of Verily Health Platforms, a, an alphabet company that's combining a data-driven, people-first approach to precision health. She's also a former health system CEO, medical school dean. She's a member of the National Academy of Medicine. She's regularly listed on modern healthcare's most influential clinical executives, as well as their most influential people in healthcare. This is the first time Dr. Lee's been on the race to value, and it's my pleasure to bring her to you this week as we talk about this important crisis of climate change and where value-based care can bring solutions to this important challenge. 
Well, Dr. Lee, welcome to the Race to Value. It is so great to be with you this week. Thanks for having me. Wonderful to be with you. On this podcast, Dr. Lee, we talk a great deal about health equity and population health, and there's no greater variable impacting the health of people throughout the world than climate change. The World Health Organization has called climate change the greatest threat to global health in the 21st century. They estimate that a staggering one in four deaths can be attributed to preventable environmental causes, and a climate change is exacerbating these risks. And understanding this phenomenon is so important in every aspect of value-based care and, of course, in advancing health equity because the recognition of that complex relationship between climate change and human health, especially those in underserved and marginalized communities. And the medical research community has coalesced around this threat of climate change. Uh, a couple of years ago, more than 200 medical journals released an unprecedented joint statement, and they had a report that outlined the core climate risks to the future and offered strategies that healthcare organizations can use to build more resilient operations. And climate change is such a serious concern with the Earth's climate contributing to a host of health issues, commonly lack of access to clean water, allergens, respiratory disease, heat-induced illness, infectious disease. And it doesn't discriminate, but it does impact those underserved communities. So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Lee, as we start our conversation today, can you provide an overall frame of the climate change crisis? And since our listeners are leaders in the value movement, is there a role that value-based care can play in addressing the climate crisis through its focus on population health outcomes and reduced disparities? Yeah, thank you so much for that overview and that introduction. I think you've done a really nice job, Eric, framing uh, a lot of the issues and concerns. And let me just start by saying, I love your podcast, and I am really one of those value-based care people. I'm actually not a, a climate change person, uh, at least my roots are not. And I've only really come to to think about this and to really care about this more recently in my career. So that's really going to be the angle at which I think about what's happening with climate change is from the angle of having been a healthcare CEO and also a health tech executive. The way I look at it is we can see already all of us are experiencing the consequences of climate change. We're seeing global warming happening. We're reading a lot about, even if we're not affected ourselves necessarily, but we see the increasing wildfires and the droughts and the the increased flooding on our coasts and just all of these issues. And we understand that the scientists have pretty clear models about what's going on and the amount of carbon dioxide that's in our air now is pretty unprecedented levels. So now really the question is, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it as people, as members of our communities and societies? And specifically, what are we going to do about it as healthcare leaders? And I, I feel like the climate change issue, first of all, there's two different sets of roles that we have to play in healthcare. The first one, in, which is the most obvious, is we have to help people manage through these crises. And that requires, first of all, that we have the right kinds of care available to people. So for example, I was at a meeting last summer, a bunch of pulmonologists at Stanford saying, do we have enough doctors who can care for kids and adults who have respiratory problems, especially asthma? Do we train enough people today to care for those kinds of patients? Do we have enough in our training now to educate just basic medical care includes dealing with heat stroke? That wasn't something that was really all that common when I was in medical school, but now, especially in some parts of the country, it's just routine. So how are we 
training our workforce and equipping them with the right uh, tools and having our facilities available and accessible to people in the event of um, some kind of a climate-related event. And it doesn't even have to be climate. It's any kind of crisis. When I was at the University of Utah, we were on a major fault line. So we were just worried about earthquakes. Bad stuff happens. And unfortunately, I think with climate change, that bad stuff is going to happen more often. And we need to be prepared as health systems uh, to help people really manage through that. And, and I should just mention that through the COVID crisis, we saw just how vulnerable our supply chain line is, right? So we could be doing great. We could have all the pulmonologists in the world, but if we don't have the respiratory equipment, the ventilators, all that, we're also in trouble. So managing and making sure that we can deliver healthcare to our communities in the event of a crisis, that our workforce can be, they're going to be able to work, that we have access to our supplies, and that we're actually going to be able to provide care is really important. So that's one big part. The second part is probably closer to what you're leading towards and talking about, which is how do we think about our own impact, the impact of the work that we do on climate itself? And many of your listeners may or may not be aware of, of some of the work that you've talked about, which is the fact that in the U.S., the healthcare industry is responsible for, it depends on which paper you look at, but maybe eight to 10% of the overall carbon footprint of the country. And that's more than twice as much as any other country. So we're a pretty significant outlier in terms of how much carbon we actually emit just by caring for our patients. So here we are actually we're supposed to be do no harm. That's supposed to be our mantra. But in fact, we probably are contributing to worsening health in the ways that you described in some of your statistics by just simply being pollutants, uh, by polluters. And so a big second part, and then I'll pause a little bit, but the big second part of how we have to think in healthcare is how do we reduce our own carbon footprint? How do we actually green healthcare? And how could that potentially align with the whole value-based goal of our system as well. So those are the two areas that we've been thinking a lot about recently. Dr. Lee, I appreciate your application of a climate lens to value-based care. It seems like we have to be able to assess climate-driven health risks and integrate them into policies and other actions to improve the nation's health. And, and to your point, we also need to be thinking about greening our healthcare delivery systems. As we're taking this population-based approach to care delivery, we also have to prioritize decarbonization and resilience and adapt to data infrastructure and create that climate-ready workforce that you talked about. And I wanted to engage you on this important priority to decarbonize the healthcare system. I know it's an issue that you've been actively involved in as a thought leader and change agent. And you mentioned earlier about 8 to 10% of greenhouse gas emissions were produced by the healthcare system in the U.S. And it's about twice as other countries. And I've also read that pollution from healthcare associated energy use is estimated to be about 405,000 disability adjusted life years annually, which is about the burden of preventable medical errors. And we think about all this 
impact of associated greenhouse gases with health systems and how this is a major fuel intensity that's among the top of all commercial buildings in the U.S. And we have to be thinking about as we transform our hospitals, how do we go about decarbonizing when we're in these health system leaders are already dealing with slim operating margins and workforce challenges and supply chain issues and inflation and all that. But I think there's a, a case to be made that adopting climate smart strategies and building a more resilient system could actually create a, a return on investment and, and it does good for the world as well. So I wanted to ask you if you could discuss why it's so crucial to adopt a decarbonization strategy and what specific measures can healthcare organizations take to effectively decarbonize their operations while also maintaining uh, high quality patient care? I love that question, Eric, because I think there is a really strong business case for a number of initiatives that can also help really reduce our carbon footprint. So let me give you an example. I can give you multiple examples, but I'll start with one, which is around energy. As you said, hospitals are among the most energy intensive buildings out there. We all know it. If we're working in healthcare, we know our energy bills are pretty high. And with the Inflation Reduction Act that was uh, passed in 2022, there are provisions in that act that enable hospitals, whether they're for-profit or even non-for-profit, to get significant either tax credits or direct payments. So if you're a non-for-profit, you don't get a tax credit because you're not paying taxes, but you get a direct payment instead for making changes that are more sustainable or moving you to renewables. And they're huge. They're really important. So most, I, I hope many of your listeners are aware of this, but if they're not, there are some really great resources online for understanding what the Inflation Reduction Act can do. For example, the basic provision of the Inflation Reduction Act says, if you want to say, let's say you're building a new facility or you're renovating an old facility, that's more likely. Let's say you're renovating an old facility and you've got some old generators and you've been thinking about maybe doing some investing in some solar or some wind or whatever, depending on which part of the country that you're in. If you're in the middle part of the country, that's the big solar wind belt, right? Texas is like one of the biggest states for this. So we know now that in many of the states in the country, the renewable energy actually costs less than fossil fuel energy. So it just makes sense to make that switch, except there's a capital investment up front. That's where the Inflation Reduction Act comes in. So at a baseline, the Inflation Reduction Act will cover about 30%. There'll be a direct payment back to you or a tax credit for 30% of your of the, your cost in investing in some kind of renewable system. If you are serving an underserved community, you can get another 10%. If you are buying mostly American-made, that's another 10%. So the government is willing to give you as much as 50%. There might even be provisions for even a little bit more to cover your capital investment to move to renewable energy. That's huge because once you move to that renewable energy, the ongoing savings from the lower cost of your renewable energy are significant. And so there are some health systems today who have made these investments in the past who are saving tens of millions of dollars just by moving into renewables. So that's one example now where I feel like we can do good and do well if we can actually reduce our carbon footprint significantly 
And we can actually have an ongoing operating savings, which of course we all need now to fall to our bottom line. Just give you one other quick example in the energy space, which as I said, I'm pretty new to this sustainability field and I feel like the opportunities are so huge. We're always talking about how much waste there is in the system and how we really need to reduce the waste. One way to find the waste is to think about it through your carbon footprint. So for example, there are a couple of papers that were just published in the last couple of years in radiology departments. So I'm a radiologist, so they caught my attention. And they were looking at the amount of energy needed to run the MRIs and the CAT scan machines, which are pretty high intensity, pretty energy intensive machines. And what these researchers found, one, one of these studies was from, I think, Switzerland. Another one was from UCSF in California. And what they found was that about 60% of the energy consumed by MRI machines took place when the systems, when the offices were closed evenings and weekends, because they weren't put down into idle mode. They were just basically left on overnight and over the weekends, 60% of the energy. In fact, one of the papers showed that if we were able to reduce that and basically eliminate the amount of waste, turn it into idle mode, we would reduce our carbon footprint just by that one change in radiology, equivalent to the entire carbon footprint of the National Health Service in the UK. Just that one change. And think about that. You're not do, you're not impacting care at all. You're just turning your power for your idle MRIs and CAT scans down to minimum. That's it. That's all you're doing. So, and you're reducing your own energy bills significantly. So there's a lot of opportunities for doing good and doing well, reducing our carbon footprint, reducing our costs at a time when we're all margin challenged. Uh, we all want to reduce our expenses. And I would love our health systems across the country to be paying more attention to this and taking advantage of these opportunities. I completely agree. And it seems like we, we definitely need a critical mass of health systems that are adopting a, a climate resilience strategy and, and going through the decarbonization efforts that are needed. And so much of what we try to do on this podcast is to create the platform for storytelling and evangelizing around transformation. And, and I, I would love for our listeners to understand that th these are actually things that can be done today to create an effective delivery system and impact uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Doctors have this, they swear on an oath to do no harm and the systems have to conform to do the same. And with healthcare operations contributing so much to climate change, we have to be thinking about this. And so I, I would love to get your your take on some of the storytelling here, maybe with sharing some bright spots. I know one of your co-authors on your recent New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst article was Kathy Gerwig, and she was with Kaiser Permanente, and she wrote the book Greening Healthcare, How Hospitals Can Heal the Planet. And she dispels that cost myth of decarbonization. And I know she was instrumental in creating a lot of innovations at Kaiser Permanente that led to on-site solar power and renewable energy and waste reduction and really getting that return on investment. And they've since, uh, I think since they implemented in 2016, they've become carbon neutral, I think in, in 2020. 
And there's also this example of Boston Medical Center, which is a safety net nonprofit academic center, which serves a large indigent population. And they've been able to reduce their carbon emissions by more than 90%. So I'm sure you have other examples as well, but I wanted to see if you could provide maybe some insights as to what health systems uh, should be uh, doing as they take a lead in implementing a decarbonization strategy and what does success look like in action so our listeners can start thinking about how they can use those insights in their own respective transformation efforts. First of all, if your listeners are interested in learning more about this topic, which I hope they are, Greening Healthcare, Kathy Gerwig's book that you mentioned is fantastic. It's just such a great series of stories throughout the healthcare system, whether it's energy that I talked about, or she opens with a story about how some of the plastic IV bags that they were using in one of the pediatric hospitals, so infusing these little newborns, these little babies, were leaching out these toxic chemicals and how they got that all changed out, all the way to things like food farms and solar energy. And she just has a whole... When people ask, what does that even mean? Like, where is our carbon footprint in healthcare? Her book just tells a whole bunch of stories, very readable book that kind of give you an overview of where so many of the opportunities are. And then there are also a number of other resources. There are many people now who are moving into this field, which is wonderful. So there is a, a what they call a primer that was published just last year by ARC, A-H-R-Q, that's online, free, and it's for basically healthcare leaders to learn. They have some of the case studies that we had in our New England Journal Catalyst, but they have a lot of other cases as well. There's an organization called Healthcare Without Harm that has a ton of material also, and I think their affiliate is called Practice Green Health, and they have a lot of material. There's another organization called Medical Society Consortium. So there are a number of these different organizations that are all in this space that have case studies and materials and templates, and it's all growing, which I think is terrific. And if listeners are interested, they have the Medical Society Consortium or Healthcare Without Harm, you can join their listserv and just get their updates and get access to most of their materials are free and accessible online. So I think that's really great. From my perspective, I think that there are, I think there are so many opportunities for aligning with the decarbonization effort that are completely synergistic with what we've been wanting to do around value-based care for the last 20, 25 years. If you think about some of the top things that we talk about, the fact that we need to focus on prevention and primary care, an ounce of prevention, kind of that line we're always talking about. If you think about the carbon footprint, not requiring any care and primary care have a much lower carbon footprint than high-intensity tertiary, quaternary care, much better not to have the stroke at all than to come in and have to have all the consequences of that stroke. Even if you even if you fully recover, which of course we hope you do, it's still very high intensity care that you needed to get to that point. So that whole focus on prevention, primary care, totally in sync. Thinking now, especially post-COVID, about how we can use telehealth, how we can actually reduce the need for transportation. 
by patients, but even sometimes the telehealth reduces the transportation necessary for by clinicians. We're, we had a pilot in one of our hospitals that uh, was looking at telenursing for patients on the floor. So think about this. So of course, every floor has nurses that are there on site, but then also in every room, there's a touchpad and you can access your nurse on call who's working from home anytime you have a question. In our pilot, the patients love that because yeah, of course, you want to have somebody there to to look after you, especially if something bad happens, but to give you your medications and do all those things and check your blood pressure. But sometimes maybe you missed the communication when the team came around and now your family member's in the room and you want to talk to the nurse, but they're busy. And so you can just use your little use your little iPad and get in contact with your telenurse. So telehealth can actually also be used for staff as well as for patients. That's another area that really aligns with um, value-based care as well. Then there's also the whole space of waste. Don Berwick's paper years ago estimated at least 30% of healthcare is wasted. It's probably more. All of that we're wasting, whether it's supplies, whether it's overutilization, whether it's too many MRIs of the brain for headache, whatever it is, those all have a carbon footprint that can go away. And if we can reduce that waste, again, it's like what we were talking about before. It's better for the planet. It's also better for our finances. It makes sense for our healthcare system, especially on the inpatient side when we're paid by DRGs, we're paid prospectively. So if we can reduce that waste on the inpatient side, that falls to our bottom lines. So we can, again, do good for the planet, we can do good for our communities, and we can actually make ourselves financially healthier as well, all in the spirit of this idea of moving towards more value in our healthcare system. Dr. Lee, that was an outstanding explanation of this critical intersection between value-based care transformation and climate change. As I'm thinking about this, these health systems have to embody this level of resilience. And as they're supporting and identifying high-risk populations, they also need to do the same in terms of anticipating community needs and developing uh, community partnerships to address issues related to climate change. And I think you really articulated this important need to not only re respond to climate-related shocks, but also create those sustained improvements in population health uh, with an unstable climate. And one of the other things that I was thinking about and I wanted to ask you about was just the role of advocacy in, in the medical community. We've seen a lot of these health profession societies include recommendations in their guidelines of care uh, related to climate change. I think the AMA recently put out a, a statement that they encourage physicians to assist in educating patients and the public on sustainable practices and to serve as role models and providing environmental sustainability. And uh, I know climate change is becoming baked in a lot of the to care, but these aren't reimbursable conversations and the healthcare providers are already overwhelmed. And I'm also also thinking about whether or not patients would even respond favorably 
to a conversation on environmental sustainability since our society seems to be so politically charged around climate change and other issues. And there's often these wedge issues that kind of form a ideological divide between conservatives and progressives. And we're in a very heated moment right now in our political season. And I'm just thinking about the clinical setting and having these conversations around climate impact and and having maybe patient groups equate that to, I don't know, a physician telling a parent to lock up their gun or conversations around gender affirming care. It might not be that controversial, but it seems like it could be something that might create some, some tension in the provider-patient relationship. So I just wanted to ask you if you could talk about this role of healthcare providers serving as role models for environmental sustainability and what specific actions or behaviors can be incorporated in the clinical setting to advocate for more eco-friendly practices in patient communities? And are there any success stories or examples that you might want to share with our audience? That's, that's a really great question. So I think that there are some really interesting data to show, and I think we we all know this, that healthcare professionals are among the most trusted professionals, even though we felt like maybe some of that might have been questioned during the pandemic uh, when people were doubting uh, some of the, the uh, news about, say, asking or, or the vaccine. Still today, the nurses and doctors are among and pharmacists are among the most trusted professions. And so I think we have a role to play in communicating. And I think that's why these professional associations have taken it upon themselves to include it in their guidelines for how we practice medicine generally in the AMA, but also in our specific professional societies providing us guidance. It's a, it's such an interesting question that you ask, because I think that let's also acknowledge that our providers are also right now experiencing some of the greatest stress or they've just come out of some of the worst stress and still really a bit shell-shocked from that. So we, I, I'm not suggesting that we set expectations that all providers have to become climate change advocates as part of healthcare, but I think those who feel like it should be part of their practice should feel encouraged to know that uh, the people who have tried to do some of those work have actually been surprisingly successful. So let me tell you about a study that was um, published not that long ago. I want to say it might have been last year by a pediatrician, Andrew Lewandowski, who practices in private practice in Madison, Wisconsin. And he was following the 2015 American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations that health effects of climate change be incorporated into existing anticipatory guidance. Andrew, Dr. Lewandowski, decided to do a study. And between, I want to say, the end of 2020, so around December 2020 to the early few months of 2021, for the well baby visits, so these are the healthy kids who are just getting checked up, he added a short little script, which I can probably read for you because I can pull it up here. He actually published this script. I won't read you the whole thing, but I'll give you a sense of what he did in the social history section of his well child visit. He basically was following the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines. So he said, essentially, 
In the last couple of years, the American Academy of Pediatrics and other organizations declared climate change a health emergency. Air pollution alone caused over 64,000 premature deaths, and he goes on some more air quality data, disproportionately harming children. Then he said, so just like I want your children to eat healthy foods and be in the right car seat for their health and safety, we now know that decreasing our energy use, increasing energy efficiency, and supporting clean energy initiatives are also important for improving our children's health. Any questions? So that's what he did. He just started doing that as just part of his routine care. And for the study, though, he surveyed the patients, of course, their kids, but he surveyed the parents before and after. And he asked them, how likely are you to perform energy-saving behaviors, switching to LED lighting? How did this affect, impact your thinking and so on? And he even looked at it. He asked them their political affiliation as well. And so that's a it's a really interesting paper to look at. My two-second summary version of it is, first of all, you should know that it didn't turn off any patients, so none of his patients refused to see him after that, so it went over well. And overall, based on his study, maybe 120 or 150 people, it showed that he had a significant impact on them, that many of the people who reported before saying they hadn't really thought much about this reported afterwards that they were starting to think about it and they were likely to act on it or had already act on it. And the vast majority were supportive of the fact that it was included in the visit. Of course, every clinician has to decide, but I think sometimes when we put it in the context of we're just here looking after your health, we're not going to argue and debate about how much of these changes are human caused versus natural or whatever, but we just are noticing, we're observing that the climate is warmer and air quality is worse. And we need to try to do what we can to protect your children or to protect your loved ones. And for people who are comfortable with having that conversation and in the right context, obviously the well child visit is a perfect time for talking about this. Um, at least based on this one study, I think it could go over very well. And I particularly wanted to read you the script just to give you a sense of how I think science-based and really relatively health-focused it is. And I think that's also really helpful for how we think about communicating with our own patients about it. That's uh, certainly a powerful communication tool. I appreciate you sharing that. And uh, we've covered just the, these aspects of decarbonization and development of a strategy. And we've talked about advocacy and communication. But I also wanted to ask you about technology. I'd be remiss if I didn't do that. A lot of people know you from your extensive background as a leader in healthcare technology. A lot of our groups are out there in value-based care, leveraging telemedicine and predictive analytics and AI and digital health tools. And is there a role that technology can play as well in climate resilience and improving population health amidst climate change? I'd love to get your perspective on that also. That's a really great question. Thank you for asking that. In fact, there's actually a whole group um, that I was just interacting with last week called Climate AI, so artificial intelligence applied to all things climate, not just healthcare. So the answer is yes, there's so many ways in which tech and AI and better data and analytics can be used to address climate change and specifically help us think in the healthcare landscape. And it's so broad, it's almost in any particular area that we want to think about, we could be using 
technology to help us better. Let me see if I can give you just a, a couple of examples. Right now, we have increasingly sophisticated tools for looking at the climate itself, for example. There have just been a couple of major breakthroughs in terms of the accuracy of artificial intelligence, of machine learning models for predicting the weather. And being able to predict the weather and then folding in things like pollen counts, folding in additional information, for example, about what's happening with the water supply could enable us to have a much better understanding of the environment today and what's likely to happen over the next few weeks to enable us to plan and adapt accordingly. If we have loved ones who are frail and who need to be careful when it's hot, when it's bad air, when it's whatever the circumstances are, we can plan much better if we have a sense of, of what's going to happen, whether we have children, seniors, whoever it is that we're caring for. Having that available, think about how you check your weather every day. Imagine if we have a health meter for you to say, okay, today is the day when this is what's out there, but not only this is what's out there, but given your health vulnerabilities, here's what we're suggesting you might want to think about. This is the day when you might you might want to use this mask, or you might want to bring some extra water, or you might want to plan your day to include a few stopovers and some cooling off places. And here are some that are along your route on the maps feature, for example. Those are all would all be technology driven, but could be adapted to help people manage through these kind of climate events and just stay healthier, for example. On the other end of the spectrum for tech could be in reducing our carbon footprint around, let's say, healthcare supply chain. So this is a completely, so for the first example, it was really patient focused. What can patients have apps, tools on their smartphones, that kind of thing. But totally other end of the spectrum, about 80% of our carbon footprint in healthcare has to do with the delivery of care. And the vast majority of that carbon footprint is the supplies that we use and the devices and the equipment. And we have very little understanding today of the carbon footprint of the supplies that we use. Current carbon accounting just gives us like, here's the average carbon footprint of all hip prostheses, for example, or even broader categories than that. We, we can't be very savvy shoppers. We can't, we're not actually that effective when we go and purchase things to say, hey, you know what? I want the best set of hip prostheses. But also, I prefer manufacturers that you all um, have a lower carbon footprint. Maybe you don't need to ship the thing like to five different, get your pieces from five different sources or whatever, whatever it is. We want to use our market power to reduce the carbon impact of our supplies. And we really don't have a way to do that. So that's another way which tech could be very powerful to start from the very beginning and to track the carbon. It's already being done in most other industries outside of healthcare. So we're just trying to play catch up here. We're definitely not on the leading edge, but if we could do the same thing that's being done in other industries like energy and transportation, but now applied to healthcare, we should be able to have for our procurement teams, very clear information. You'd have the cost and the carbon footprint and we'd negotiate with our buyers. Okay, we'll take it this year, but next year we'd like to see a reduction in that carbon footprint, just like you're giving to the folks in Germany. Why can't we have that? So that's another example of how technology can impact.
there's so many examples. What we really need is, as I was mentioning with this climate AI program, is we need more engineering and technical folks thinking about this. We need more of that innovation, whether it's in Silicon Valley in Boston or in Boise, Idaho or Salt Lake City. We need those folks really thinking about their future, frankly, and how they can help through innovation and through the technology that they can build. Well, I couldn't agree more. And we also need the federal government to become involved in this. And I know HHS has expressed a commitment to climate resilience and emissions reductions that includes cutting greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by 2030 and achieving net zero emissions by 2050. And on Earth Day last year, they announced the health sector climate pledge. And uh, I believe as of today, there's a uh, 133 organizations representing 900 hospitals that have signed on, and we need a, a movement just like in value-based care. It's not unlike the civil rights movement. We have to come together and, and really solve this important crisis. And there was a quote that I, I read that, that Greta Thunberg said at the World Economic Forum a few years ago, solving the climate crisis is the greatest and most complex challenge that homo sapiens have ever faced. The main solution, however, is so simple, even a child can understand it. We have to stop our emissions of greenhouse gases, and either we do it or we don't. Dr. Lee, as we wrap up our conversation today, I just wanted to ask you, are you optimistic about this future in, in healthcare where we can take a lead role in making decarbonization a central uh, focus? And if so, what impact could these efforts have on the broader healthcare landscape and the well-being of both patients and the planet? I am optimistic because I have to be optimistic. The alternative is really not plausible. <laughs> I am optimistic. And I believe that this issue of keeping our communities healthier for now and into the future is something that is important to all of us. It doesn't matter what political party or what socioeconomic class, we can't escape this issue. We're all, this is one planet. And aside from the people who want to fly over to Mars, good luck to you on that. I think this is, this is our problem collectively. And so it's ours to solve. And I do feel that this was the first year that there was a whole health day at the COP meeting. I think people globally are starting to realize just how central healthcare is to both how we adapt to and, frankly, mitigate the climate effects. So I think we're going to be drawn in much more. And I think it's really an opportunity for us in healthcare who have been beating the value care drum for a long time now to have kind of a fresh take on it, to say we we want to do the right things for our patients. We want to reduce waste. We want to do way more prevention. Who wants to get sick when it can be prevented? Nobody wants to get sick. Nobody wants to go to the hospital unless you're having a baby. And so everybody wants a more value-based care system. And maybe the urgency of having to do it for the good of our planet and for good of the future will be that sort of extra critical impetus that'll push, over, push us over the edge and enable us to all, all get there. I, I hope that's the future. That's why I'm pivoting my own career. I've been in healthcare for quite a while now, and I've had a number of, I've been very fortunate to have a number of leadership roles, and I've decided to move into this space 
because it's, I think it's the single most important thing we can do. And I hope your listeners will join us on this journey. I'd love to hear from them. If people are interested, I have a website, Vivian Lee MD, and, and let's work on it together. Dr. Lee, I just can't thank you enough for your service to our industry and healthcare transformation. And I already had profound respect for you uh, in all the years I've been following your thought leadership. And, and now that you're out there really trying to advocate for a way for the healthcare system to address this climate crisis, it truly is a, an issue that we have to come together and find ways to ameliorate the impacts that are going to be long-term and sustainable. And I'm just excited to see the work that you're doing in this space. And I appreciate you sharing your perspectives and insights with our listeners today. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for having such a great podcast. Oh, yeah. It's a labor of love. Thanks so much. Thank you.